So welcome to the show. I'm David Speed. I'm Adam Brazier. And this is Creative Rebels. Uh, it's a podcast for creative entrepreneurs. We started our first company, Graffiti Life, in a small garage. Yeah, it wasn't easy. But we built the company up to the stage where now we're regularly working with brands like Disney and Nike. And we've been lucky enough to make art all over the world. On this podcast, we interview successful creators. Their advice will enable you to take action and turn your passion into a career. There's literally been no better time in history to make a career from being creative. So many people are going to tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to tell you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast. Welcome back, Rebels. Hello. Yeah, been a busy old week, isn't it? Yeah, really busy. We've got a few things coming up if you follow us on Instagram is at Rebels Create. Yeah, we've got an event coming up with the Future Strategy Club, which should be really cool. That's down in Peckham. So if anyone's in London, like come down to that. That's free. Yeah, free tickets on that one. We're also doing an event for the Authentic Project early June. Yeah. Um, but tickets are available now. They are £12.50, I think. We're going to be on a panel and there's some incredible people on that panel with us. Yeah, that's super cool. That's an angel in North London if you're in London again. Yeah, another another London one. We are talking about doing some events uh, in other places in the UK as well. So uh, stay tuned for those. Um, like I said, we'll, we'll post all of those up on our story. Yeah, so it's so great doing those kind of talks because you get to meet the people who are actually listening and it's nice to help be able to help people in person. Like having that one-on-one chat with someone, helping them with their direct problems is just like so great. Yeah, you know what's really blowing me away at the moment is when like, you kind of go into that mode of like people are asking you about what you do and whatever and you say like I say about the podcast and yeah. then when people say I already listen I'm like fuck yeah that's it's the mental. maddest thing I'm like oh shit I don't even need to like do the hard sell on you like yeah. you already <laughs> listen it's mad I've started to do that when I'm on the tube I've just kind of like I suppose it's a bit of like an ego thing, like hoping that someone's like listening to you, but like I'll just kind of like look over and see at someone's phone just because at one point I hope to see like our little logo. Have you seen anyone listening to no, us? No, I haven't, but oh. I can't wait. can't wait for it. Yeah, that would be amazing. Questions. Uh, feel free to send in your questions to us on Instagram. We got an interesting one this week, didn't we? Yeah, so we basically got a question kind of asking about like how we started the podcast and how we managed to get our first guests when we didn't have an audience. One of the scariest things is when you have zero listeners and you're trying to persuade a guest to to come on your podcast yeah i think it's the same with anything like no matter who you are if you're trying to somehow work with someone collaborate with someone if you haven't got anything to offer there's no kind of equal exchange there generally people who are asking want more of a percentage than they're going to give to someone else yeah i think as humans we do this this weird sort of status thing don't we where a lot of people look at um, relationships very transactionally yeah and see like oh what what can I get from this person yeah, rather it's like, than it's like being at a networking event I suppose isn't it where everyone's out there just to try and get something for themselves like they're not there to make friends yeah as we've kind of talked about in the past yeah because really the magic happens when you can help each other and I think I can't remember who it is that said but um it's a great quote is um make friends before you need them yeah i think the key is if you've got a message that you want to share or there's something that you believe in that you can get other people to believe in or they believe in too generally that will outweigh the kind of costs involved whether that's kind of like time or whatever yeah when we when we first started this podcast has obviously grown tremendously fast um and we debuted at number one and all of those things. But we started with absolutely zero. And I think that um, we were basically asking our our very first guests, we were asking them to take a risk mm-hmm. because the average podcast lasts for seven episodes. That's yeah. the, the kind of average before most people quit. And so to ask a guest to commit an hour of their time, probably more, to come and sit down with us and be interviewed for something which may well like the odds are won't last past seven mm-hmm. episodes obviously we did but yeah but the chances are won't last past seven episodes like that's a big risk to them so we had to counterbalance that risk with our pure message of what we were trying to do with the show and hope that that's and it and it worked i mean we just sent emails out we started off the email with a little bit about us so we've built this company graffiti life we paint hand-painted murals for people all across the world and we've grown into a very successful company over a nine-year period whatever it is that you can talk about about yourself that yeah there's something you can talk about about yourself that 
you can kind of like even like elaborate upon like something you've done somewhere is successful so whether that's you've just finished school you've just finished university you've just been working at this agency for three years like there's something there that you can kind of like pick upon that you can kind of give yourself a little bit of proof of who you are and try and make people believe in that yeah because I guess I guess you're building trust you're saying I've got this podcast or blog or whatever or whatever it is that you're starting that's currently got zero listeners or watchers or followers or whatever however I have done something else and people believed in me and trusted me in in another endeavor I mean you might not have that it's just nice if you do have that so we said that but the and that was just to kind of establish who we were but the main bulk of the email was just talking about the why we were doing this podcast yeah yeah i suppose like we went out with a message of like we want to change things we want to help people and all the problems that we had when we started our business we wanted to be able to translate and give that advice and advice that others can give to other people so then that hopefully they can grow and have an easier time than we did to get to where they need to get to. Yeah, and we spent a long time writing those those early emails to just kind of get across the the purity, I guess, of what we were trying to do. Yeah. So we were going after really big name guests, but we were saying that we feel this is important because we feel like creativity is being crushed out of people. We feel that it's really hard for um, for people who are trying to make a creative career. It's that like they face loads of different challenges. And so we want to address those. And so we're asking our potential guests to fight that fight with us and kind of getting them inspired with, I guess it's our why, our reason behind why we were doing the show, getting them on board with that. And they want, they kind of wanted to join in that fight with us yeah and it's super interesting because where we are now we've experienced that from the other side of a coin too so with our business doing hand painting murals and advertising we often get clients come to us who don't have a big budget who have a cause that they're supporting that we want to be involved with yeah so they'll try and inspire us because they can't offer us any money or, or like limited money so they'll try and inspire us with the message that they're that they're trying to do and if it's something that we believe in so for example we painted that giant tiger in Shoreditch for WWF World Wildlife Fund which is one of our most popular murals that we've ever painted Um, but the reason that we we took that on because they had a small budget but we took it on because we we believed in the message that they were trying to get across absolutely and I think yeah if you can somehow convince someone that you've got a strong message and that they might be interested in it too. But do your research on people. If you want to reach out to someone, do some research and see if they have any like anything in the past that they've done that, that links to what you're trying to get them to do. Yeah, that's such a key point. Every single email that we send out to a potential guest is tailored to that guest and yeah. why we think they'd be brilliant for the show. Yeah. For example, today's guest, Debbie Millman, like literally um, emailed her three times to get her on the show and she yeah. ignored the first two emails but she so we, we were kind of persistent but yeah but we we craft those emails to be completely specific to the guests that we're trying to that we're trying to get on the show and I think too many people would would rather they'll they'll spend an hour sending out a hundred copy and pasted emails yeah why not spend an hour sending one email that you've crafted to that person? You're much more likely to get a yes because, I mean, we can smell copy and paste from a mile off. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and on the topic of Debbie Millman. I'm so glad that uh, we did, because like just before we were about to go, I sent that, um, so we went to New York recently and um, and interviewed Debbie while we were over there. And yeah, and it was just before we went, I sent the the third and final email as like a last ditch yeah. attempt. And she was like, oh yeah, sorry, I've just been really busy. Um, but I'm so glad I sent that that third email because um, what a conversation. Yeah, Debbie's amazing. She's the first podcast that I ever listened to. And her podcast, Design Matters, is just full of amazing guests. Like she's interviewed everyone. <laughs> Debbie Millman is the host of Design Matters, which is one of the very first podcasts in the world ever. Um, she's interviewed basically everyone. She's written six books. Her illustrations have appeared in publications like the New York Times and Fast Company. And with Steve Heller, she founded the world's first graduate program in branding. Debbie's delivered keynote speeches around the world and she's worked on the redesign of over 200 global brands, brands like Colgate, Nestle, Pepsi and a million others. We're so grateful to Debbie for agreeing to come on the show. Uh, She's just a wonderful person and we think you're going to love this episode. 
In this episode, we talk about creativity, branding, and starting a movement. If you look back at our history, it took 35 years for 150 million people to own a black and white television set. It took seven years for 150 million people to own a phone, a cell phone. And it took about three months for 150 million people to wear a pink pussy hat. Hi, Debbie. Hello, how are you? Well, well, thanks for doing our podcast. My pleasure. So first question I'm going to ask you is, are you happy? I'm really happy. That's a great question to start with. I've spent a long time trying to feel this happy. Mm. <laughs> and you caught me at a, at a very good time in my life. I'm, I'm ecstatic. And what makes happiness? What's your definition of happiness? I don't know that I have a definition of happiness. I read something recently on Seth Godin's blog about happiness versus pleasure. With pleasure, you're always trying to seek more. Mm -hmm. But with happiness, that means you're content with what you have. And I think that is probably the closest that I could get to a definition that I'm appropriating. It's not mine, but I think that's very, it feels very accurate for me. Great. Have you always, uh, how, like how, for how long have you been, have you felt happy? Cause you said we've, we've caught you at a good time in your life. I would say probably for the last, I would say going on two years, I had always been someone that struggled for, for many, 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 many decades. And over the years, I do have to say every decade has gotten significantly better. Mm -hmm. So I would say that the darkest time of my life was probably between the ages of four when you kind of, that's when you first start being able to have memories. Yeah. So from four to about 16, 17 were really what I would call the dark years. <laughs> and then I got away from my home and went to college and things got much better in college. And then I graduated and things got hard again. Through my 20s, I, I always talk about my 20s as being experiments in rejection and failure. Yeah. And then my 30s got better, incrementally better. And then 40s and 50s have just been almost a line up. And are you glad for those failures? Well, I will, again, appropriate from somebody smarter than me. I think I've synthesized my happiness in that... I can now make sense of the struggles and see how they created the the life that I have now. You know, Dan Gilbert talks about organic happiness versus synthesized happiness. Organic happiness is sort of what you feel when something really good happens and that is something that you experience quite naturally. Mm. Synthesized happiness is when you are able to make happy from what you have or don't have. So, for example, he uses the example of Pete Best, the, the one of the original Beatles, who ended up getting fired just mm. before the Beatles hit it big. And the Beatles had been in the studio and on the road for almost a decade before they really hit it big. And for Pete Best to have gotten fired right at the point that they were about to explode was really, really traumatic for him. And he experienced severe depression. And then over the course of his life, he may, ended up making a life that he was really happy about. And by the end of his life, there's an article, I think in The Guardian, an interview with him where he states that he's happier than he would have been had he been in the yeah. Beatles, which almost seems incredulous, <laughs> but it was, he was very sincere. And so Dan Gilbert calls that synthesized happiness. When you look back at something and think, well, I'm happy with the way things are. Yeah. And it, this is the best thing that could have happened to me. Yes. Yeah, being grateful for what you've, ha what you've well, got. Also, also he looks at people that have gone through significant trauma and how that trauma then reshapes their life. Yeah. And, and, he uses examples of people's happiness level returning to what it was before the trauma. Mm -hmm. So I would say that I can look back at my life and say that, well, if that hadn't happened and that hadn't happened, then I wouldn't be here right now. And if I'm super happy with where I am right now, then it would lead you to believe that 
I've synthesized my happiness. I'm fine with that. I don't know that there's really any difference between organic happiness and synthesized happiness, other than I think that synthesized happiness lasts longer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you could speak to 20-year-old Debbie, what do you reckon you'd say to her to help synthesize some happiness? Oh, come out so much sooner, Debbie. Come out so much sooner. Mm -hmm. Your life would have been so much better if you had just sort of recognized your orientation and accepted it and didn't feel as much shame and judgment. That's definitely one thing I would have said. I probably would have said, don't marry that guy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Break up with her sooner. Things like that. Mostly relationship stuff. Most, well, no, 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 definitely not. But those are the things that I think hurt the most. So I think that those are the things that I bring up the most. As a podcast interviewer, me interviewing you, you're uh, the perfect guest because there's so much content online about you that you're really easy to research. So I've, I'm I've, an open book. <laughs> yeah. So I've like, I've consumed so much Debbie Millman too. Oh my God. Um, I'm so sorry. And a lot of it is probably stuff you've heard like four or five or six or 25 times, right? No, no, it's, it's, um, I think you have a, a real art of when you are being interviewed of, of actually taking things down, down different paths. There's no kind of set. This is the Debbie Millman interview, which is oh, great. Thank which you. Is why you know, want, flattery will get you everywhere. Which is David. why we wanted you on the show. So. <laughs> thank you. Um, but kind of the way I've seen your life, and sorry for me to be analyzing your life, is I know this is totally weird, but it's actually um, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but to me, it feels like you have just adapted to situations that have happened to you. So there's been a series of events as with everyone's life, and you have just maximized opportunities because. I guess you've just sort of realized that you, you can't do both options. So in making decisions, um, I decide actually means to cut out, doesn't it? In, in I think it's in yeah, Latin, yeah. the word decide means to cut out. So it's oh, actually, wow. and, and I think the decisions that you've made as much of the way that you are going to go, they also involve what you've cut out and where you're not going to go. And you've just kind of rolled from one opportunity into another, making the most of those opportunities. Would that be a fair analysis of your life that I've done? I think that that is, from the outside, what I think is apparent. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I would say I rolled. I'd say I clunked. (laughs) (laughs) Rolled somehow seems effortless and natural, whereas I feel like it's been a a stumbling path, or as Brene Brown would say, a real street fight, a slugfest. But I do think I am very adaptable and I do stay with things for quite a long time. It takes, it takes quite a lot for me to walk away from something or to give up or even to shift. And I mean, that can be a blessing and a curse. It absolutely Mm. can be. It absolutely can be. So I do tend to do things for a very long time, both the good things and the bad things, but I'm working on that. Yeah. I, I think that, that we have, I think most people flit between things and have shiny object syndrome and, and find it harder to actually get enveloped in something. But then there, there is also a talent to realizing when you're in too deep and, and pulling yourself out. I think it's a level of emotional intelligence that I probably don't have, but I adapt eventually. You know, I, I, I am somebody who I think comes to things later. It takes me a while to figure things out, but then when I do, I'm really cool with accepting it and then acknowledging it. So for a very long time, I was sure that I was gay, but wasn't able to come to grips with what that would mean for my life. So I didn't come out till I was 50. Now that it's been quite a number of years, I'm like on the street with the pride flags. So (laughs) once I accept something, then I'm all in. Do you feel like, do you look back and just go, what a waste of, of time for all of the years that you, that you were not out. No, not really. I mean, I do, I do have some regret at not being stronger. I do feel some shame now. Of course, I have to find the one thing that's wrong with yeah. what I've done, but I feel a little sheepish that I finally came out when it was much more socially acceptable. And so, I don't feel brave at all. I feel embarrassed that it took me so long. Yeah. And and also I feel most of the experiences that I had prior were, were beneficial again, synthesizing happiness. But I do feel that 
I learned a lot about what I was and what I wasn't in that, in that time. So better, better late than never. Definitely. Thank you for letting us um, come into your beautiful office here. My happy place. And, right. Yeah. It's funny that you should ask me, the first question you ask me is about happiness, because I do often refer to my office as my happy place. So, oh, so. just that I love being here. I love, I'm, so um, we're talking at my studio at the School of Visual Arts in my master's in branding program. I started this nine years ago. Steve Heller and I founded the program together and I am the chair and so this is where I come to work, teach, listen. I do my podcast here. So this is sort of where a lot of my favorite things happen. Norman HQ. How, how <laughs> have you designed this space for yourself? I didn't design the space. The chair that I, the my my director of operations at the time, a, an incredibly talented woman named Jamie Cohen, is a woman that can do lots and lots of different things. So she was the director of operations of the program, but she also designed the space. I do not have three-dimensional talent. Really? No, I don't. I have two-dimensional talent, and I have a good eye for two-dimension, but three-dimension... I, I'm lost. So she designed this space and, and I love it. Just want to cover one eye and just look exactly, at everything flat. Exactly. Like take a photo, see how it looks and yep. then work from there. Yes. <laughs> yes. So maybe we'll, um, maybe we'll upload a, a picture of your office onto, onto Instagram or something sure. with your, Absolutely. with your permission. Absolutely. Um, so that, so that the listeners can actually have, like, have a look and see this amazing space. But, um, one thing that caught my eye when we came in was your poster over there that says, my love affair with brands hit cr- critical mass when I was in seventh grade. And that's not something that I've heard about before. So what was there, was there a defining moment that where you sort of fell in love with brands? Well, it's interesting. That is taken from one of my visual essays in my first book of visual essays, Look Both Ways, Intersection on Life and Design. And it talks about how when I was in the seventh grade, I looked around and all of my friends and classmates were basically in a uniform of sorts. They were all wearing Levi's and Lacoste polo shirts, Levi's jeans and and polo shirts. And this was in the seventies. So that was what was considered the cool uniform. And I didn't have those items of clothing. And when I asked my mother if she would buy me some, we weren't particularly well off, in fact, quite the opposite. And she was a seamstress. And so she couldn't understand why somebody would pay, willingly pay more money for what we then called a pair of dungarees with a little red tag on the pocket when she could just as easily sew a little red tag on the back pocket of a pair that I already owned, not realizing that that would actually be worse than not having a pair. And then she made a suggestion. She, she, she suggested that I go over to the arts and crafts store. There was a store in my neighborhood called Lee Wards. And she suggested that I look for a little like embroidered emblem that I could iron on to a polo shirt that would then look like a Lacoste shirt. Yeah. Again, horrifying. I actually did go though. I thought maybe I could find a crocodile or an alligator and then just put it on a shirt. And I remember riding my bike up Daly Road to the Lee Wards in my neighborhood and looking and the only thing that I could find that was even remotely close was Tony the Tiger, which would not have worked at (laughs) all. And so I remember like riding home, like completely dejected the, the change in my mood. I was so hopeful as I was riding up the hill, up Daly Road and then coming down, just feeling so forlorn and defeated. She ended up getting me a pair of Levi's from what I imagine now was the triple markdown bin in Models or wherever mm. she got them in the Walt Whitman Mall in on Long Island. And she got me a pair of lime green bell-bottom corduroy Levi's. But I wore them every day because I thought they, they made me cooler. Yeah. And that, looking back on it now, you know, it was really when I, I don't know that I fell in love. I, I wrote that about more than 10 years ago, I would say probably my addiction, <laughs> my co, my codependency with brands began when I was in the seventh grade. What's your personal relationship with brands? Are you, are you a hoarder? Cause I mean, there's a lot of stuff here. 
Well, there's a lot of books. Am I a hoarder? Well, if you think I'm a hoarder, maybe I'm a hoarder. Because I don't think. Because I don't think that's a. It sounds really negative, and we have a negative connotation on what what a I'm hoarder. A collector. So am I. Yeah, one hundred percent. So I collect old toys from the 1980s. I have a huge collection of, of toys, and just. Which toys? I, that, I, I've collected toys from the late seventies. Ah, uh, fantastic! We've no, probably no, I'm sorry, got not the late seventies, late sixties, early seventies. Okay, sorry. so I have quite a few early Disney things from the nineteen sixties, and then going into the eighties, kind of like Masters of the Universe and Thundercats and the the boy toys that I was playing yeah, with when I was so growing I, up. I had um, Malibu Barbies of so late sixties, early seventies. PJ, Stacy, Stacy. I had the talking Barbies, so they had a string that you pulled in the back of their neck, and then they would say things. And Stacy was from the UK. And so Stacy had a line that I couldn't understand for years. She said, would you like to go to the cinema? And I had no idea what a cinema was. (laughs) And I wasn't even sure what she was saying. And I would play it over and over and over again to try to figure out what was she saying? What's a cinema? Um, And then, you know, when I got older, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and do you still have those toys? Of course I do. Incredible. So yeah, you're you're um, you're she definitely had a side pony. She's very mod. <laughs> you're uh, you're definitely a collector then. So yeah, I like our kindred spirits. Um, but it's a collector, just uh, a hoarder in denial. A collector is a hoarder <laughs> with better taste. Oh, that's, <laughs> thank yeah. you, David. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> No, yeah, you know, I'm not even going to say better. I'm going to say more discerning. You know, I don't want to collect newspapers, but I do want to collect Barbies from the late sixties. Definitely. Yeah. They're, they're oh, just, they're just items of, of beauty. I, I, for me, they're art. Yes, and, I agree. I, I yeah, agree. Just but it's all subjective, you know, and I'm being terribly judgy and that's bad. I think as long as if by looking at something, it makes you happy, then why not have yes, more of it? Yes. As Marie Kondo would say, you know, yeah. does it spark joy? Yes. My Stacy Barbie doll. From the late sixties, early seventies, sparks enormous joy. Help you learn to help you learn to speak British. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. So your love affair with brands, it, it's kind of like there were always clues. If we went back in time, you'd oh, be like, yes. "Oh, there's a yes. there's a clue. There's a clue." Well, because I was so troubled as as a kid. I looked at brands as helping me be better than I was. So from a very early age, I was collecting, hoarding, really, because they were, it was a secret thing. I was collecting ponytail holders. And I've also written about in Look Both Ways, I needed like every color of ponytail holder to feel really good. And I was obsessed. My dad had a pharmacy. And he sold Goody Barrettes in his pharmacy. So whenever I'd go to visit, I would be allowed to have one thing. And I'd always like go to the spinning wheel of, it was like a turnstile almost of, of Barrettes and would pick out something and then take it home. And I couldn't wear them all at the same time. So I, you know, I would just sort of look at them and feel the abundance of them. And then my next door neighbor, Andrea, Andrea Schreiber, if you're out there, I apologize in advance for this story. (laughs) I have been trying to find you for my whole life to apologize. Andrea had this little yellow pearlescent ponytail holder that I coveted and I stole it from her. Debbie. I stole it from my best friend. I was probably like seven, six or seven years old. I'm going to stop this interview right here. I know. I'm appalled. (laughs) I stole a beret, a ponytail holder from my best friend. I can't even believe that I did that, but that shows you to the degree mm. that I needed these things to feel good or better about myself. So, yeah. Mm. It's interesting. Do you, do you think that brands then can serve in a positive way of, of making people? Because I think a lot of people would say brands and consumerism where, where you could just buy a normal pair of jeans that, that they do their job, but they don't have a red tag on the back, but you need the red tag to make you feel special or part of a tribe or part of a club. And so you spend more money in order to do so. However, if it does make you feel good, is that because I, because I guess there's a two sides to the coin. It's, it's something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about and researching, and I have a probably way too long and complicated answer, but I'll, I'll try. So. Those things do make you feel better 
but just for a little bit of time. So humans metabolize, we metabolize our feelings very quickly. We metabolize everything very quickly. You know, we're hungry, we eat, we're full. And then a couple of hours later, we're hungry again. We're cold, we put on a sweater, we want to be warmer. We're hot, we want to take something off to be cooler. So, so we are constantly calibrating and regulating our emotions and our feelings. And brands in many ways help us do that by giving us that boost, that shot of dopamine for, for a, 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 however long it lasts. With Instagram, it might last three seconds. With a pair of Nikes, it might last a couple of weeks. With an iPhone, it might last six months until the next one comes out. So we metabolize our, our feelings and our experiences very quickly, and therefore it's never really enough. And so if our idea of happiness, going back to the original question, is, you know, a big screen, flat screen TV, We'll metabolize through that really, really quickly. It's sort of a never ending cycle of wanting more, more, more. Mm. Humans are actually really happiest when our brains are harmoniously resonating with others. And that's why we have this tremendous feeling of happiness when we first fall in love. But ironically, we also metabolize that as well. Yeah. So what might feel really, really, really good at the beginning might change over the years. And that's why we have as much divorce as we do. So. We use brands in many ways to try to capture this feeling that we're trying to get with others, with our brains harmoniously resonating with someone else or with others. Now, what's really interesting about the time that we're living in is that we're in a process now where we're democratizing our ability to make and create brands. So if we go all the way, all the way back to the beginning of branding, I branding for me, to me, is manufacturing meaning. So we create meaning through marks, through constructs. What's interesting about that phenomenon is that we create these, we manufacture this meaning, and then we all agree that that meaning means something. it's very meta and it's very human. We're the only species on the planet that can do this. So we'll create something that we signify means something. And then we'll expect that everybody will agree with what that meaning is. So the very first examples of that are religious symbols. So we create, yeah, (laughs) David's like, whoa. Whoa, (laughs) So we created these symbols that signified belief. Now, whether or not that belief is empirically true, something that depends on the person you ask. There is no empirical truth. There is no mathematical theorem that proves that this exists. We agree that this symbol means this and that we then worship because of that. It's really amazing. That started about 10,000 years ago. Fast forward 10,000 years or fast forward 9,985 <laughs> years. Consumers, people started to create brands that were then mass marketed. So in the late, mid to late 1800s, the branded construct became the purview of the corporation which were just groups of people. And those brands were created for recognition, for familiarity, to be able to demand a premium for money. Money is also a construct. You know, it's a symbol that we agree means something. If we were to put a dollar bill in a rocket ship and send it off to another civilization, they would have no idea what it was, would have no meaning to them whatsoever. So again, these are constructs we create, we manufacture meaning around this thing, then we agree this meaning means something, and then we fight about it, go to war for it, kill each other for it, whatever. So mid mid to late 1800s, the corporation takes over the branded construct, starts to market and manufacture and sell and distribute and create meaning around those things. Tribes are made. There's really very little difference between a Nike tribe and a Catholic tribe. Depends on what you're worshiping. Even scientists will say that the belief in science is a belief. So now we fast forward to Right around now, I would say within the last 
no more than five years because of the way that we can communicate through technology. Humans now are taking back the branded construct from the corporation and we're creating movements. And that is very exciting to me because all of these original brands were movements that then became codified. So now we're living in a day and age where we have Black Lives Matter and Me Too and Time's Up and the Pink Pussy Hat, which is one of the greatest brands that have ever been created <laughs> because that brand went from zero to millions and millions and millions of people being aware of it and buying it and wearing it in just a matter of months. If you look back at our history, it took 35 years for 150 million people to own a black and white television set. It took seven years for 150 million people to own a phone, a cell phone. And it took about three months for 150 million people to wear a pink pussy hat. Pretty amazing. So the idea of brand being top down has shifted and is now reversed and it's now bottom up. Top down meaning from consume, from corporation to consumer. And now it's from people to people. And I think that bodes well for our future. So there's my very, very long answer. Why does it bode well for our future? Because we have, we're being able to use the same tenets of brand creation, brand building, brand messaging, not for finance, not for financial benefits, not for a return on the investment in a corporation, not for market share, shelf presence, all of those things, but to try to make the world a more just and noble place. What could be better than that. Yeah. I think one thing I say to a, a lot of creatives and, and I always use Nike as the example, actually, which is funny. I think we look as at. As you are wearing a Nike Brooklyn t-shirt, two brands <laughs> in one. Uh, yeah, no, I'm so, I'm <laughs> it's so, nice. No, it's beautiful. <laughs> but, um, what, what I often say is that Nike was built by a person and then a few more people and then a few more people right. and, and ev like everything on the planet is built by people. Exactly. And so, and I think that. Except trees. And yeah. Like yeah. That. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> that kind of stuff. But I think that the, especially cause we're, we're talking to creative people all the time that are sort of trying to get their foot in the door, that are trying to start movements. And when, when you are in the beginning and it can be a frustrating and scary place to do that, I, I just try and remind them that when you do look at these huge, massive successes that they almost see as other, that's unachievable, that, that are a global, multi-million pound organizations they started with one person and that's that's all it takes and just to to kind of go for it to just do it as it were yes still on the topic of happiness you mentioned the 10-year plan for a remarkable life could you talk a little bit about that Absolutely. Well, this is something that I've appropriated from Milton Glaser. In 2005, I took a summer intensive with him, a class at School of Visual Arts. He was teaching that every summer for about 50 years. He doesn't do it anymore. And it was for mid-level designers that were looking to sort of reboot their creativity. And it was a remarkable class. And to have an opportunity to be taught by Milton Glaser... I mean, I can't even begin to tell you what that does for your soul. Mm. And the final assignment in the class was to write a five-year plan about what your life would be like if you could do anything that you want and have anything that you want. And he asked for us to make it very specific from the moment we woke up till the moment we went to sleep, what was our day like? Everything from where we wake up, how we wake up, what kind of bed we're in, what kind of sheets we have, what kind of breakfast do we eat, what are the surroundings and so forth, all the way through till the very end of the day when you go back into bed. And he warned us to take it very seriously because one of the most common types of feedback that he got from students was five years after they took the class and they wrote to him to tell him that their five-year plan completely came true. Yeah. So he suggested that it was a magical little exercise. And so I put my heart and soul into it. It was 2005. And so I was writing a plan for 2010. 
And I not only wrote my essay, but I also wrote a list. I was being very, very proactive with this. And so I made this list and I put it in a notebook and put it away and kind of forgot about it. And then I would say within months, literally months, things started to manifest from the list. And again, I'd sort of put it out of my mind, came across the journal about two or three years later and realized that probably half the list had come true. It was a remarkable, mm. remarkable experience to realize that. And then I would say by the five-year mark, 80% had come true. And what kind of things were on the list? Teaching, which I hadn't done. And then suddenly I was teaching. And then beyond that, asked to co-found a branding master's program at the School of Visual Arts, yeah. which wasn't even on my radar to write a book. I've now written six. I hadn't written any at that time. I wanted to be on the national board of AIGA, which I then was and then became president of national of the entire AIGA. And then just recently got the AIGA medal, which if anybody had said back in 2005 that I was going to get, I would have told them that they were smoking crack. <laughs> Is that because of the little being kicked off of the panel of the AIGA. Oh, that was, that would, that had already happened. So yes, yeah. I had been kicked to the curb. I had been rejected by AIGA, like uniformly rejected. Mm. And so, yeah, I mean, incredible things. I wanted to get a partnership with Adobe for design matters, which then happened. And I still have a relationship with Adobe. So it's 14 years later. It's kind of amazing. And you think these things, things happened because you wrote them in your book or is there more we to it than that? We will never know, will we? <laughs> we will never know. Do you have a theory? I think that I declared that I wanted them. And yes, I do believe it is because of that list, that yeah. essay. So in Milton's class, it was sort of a fight club mentality. What happens in fight club stays in fight club. We weren't allowed to talk about it to anybody because the lead up to writing the essay was significant in the way in which yeah. you were then writing the essay. So when Milton stopped teaching the class, I asked him if it would be okay for me to start teaching that specific essay. And he said, yes. And I changed it from five years to 10 years because most of the people that I work with now are much younger than I was when I took the class and feel like I'm giving them a little bit more runway. Most of the people that I teach are in their 20s and 30s. Mm -hmm. And I was already in my 40s when I was taking the class. So I wanted to give people a little bit more time. And so it's a t the 10 year plan for a remarkable life. That's what it's called. And why is, why was teaching important for you? Well, I really feel like I didn't get any sense of what I was capable of until I was in college and had a truly revelatory experience with a great teacher who for the first time in my life ever made me feel like I was smart and had potential. And that was Dr. Helen Ruggiero Elam at the State University of New York at Albany. So I'm now setting up a scholarship in her name. She's mm -hmm. still teaching because that's how much she changed me and changed my life. She gave me the sense that I could think well. How did she do that? By taking me seriously, by encouraging my thinking with just a tremendous amount of encouragement and belief. But she wasn't just doing it for me. She was doing this for her students. And so I, when I felt like I had something that I could give back, really wanted to do that and pay it forward. And so part of what I feel is the foundation of the way that I teach is to encourage people to defend their ideas and in the process of defending their ideas to build confidence. So I define confidence as the successful repetition of any endeavor. And so if you are successfully able to defend an idea, you can then build confidence through that defense. And so that's what I try to do with my students. For people that, that don't have that mentor or that figure in their life that, that do give them the encouragement to fulfill their dreams, what advice would you give to those people to, to build that confidence? Well, 
I'll, I'll, again, I feel like all I'm doing is, is stealing from other people with their quotes and their ideas, but this one is really worth it. And I've talked about this quite a lot on, on other podcasts, but I think it is worth repeating. And that is the notion of courage versus confidence. And this is a conversation that I had with Danny Shapiro, New York Times bestselling author of a extraordinary book called Inheritance and as well as a number of others. Uh, she also has a great podcast called Family Secrets, but she and I were talking when I interviewed her about confidence. And she, at the time, three books on confidence had come out and they're all up on the top shelf of, of my bookshelves. You can see them, confidence, confidence code and so forth, right next to Emily Post's etiquette book up on the oh, top, yes, top yeah. shelf. And um, they're there for a reason, There's top, a top shelf. <laughs> well, I, I felt that I was trying to crack the code of confidence and mm. she very clearly, defiantly said that she thought that confidence was overrated. And that stopped me in my tracks because here I am now trying to find the holy grail of confidence. And I wanted to know more. Why did she feel that way? And she said that she felt that most apparently confident people that she met and spoke with were kind of annoying. And I agreed with her. You know, I felt (laughs) like they're kind of arrogant usually mm. and a little bit off-putting. And she felt what was way more important was courage. The ability to step into the unknown without any guarantee of success. Mm-hmm. And I agreed that how can you expect to have confidence in doing something? A lot of people say, well, I'll just wait until I feel better about myself yeah. or feel like I have more confidence before I try that thing. But that's not the way it works. And we are not even able to walk confidently without falling. So why would we think that anything that we do for the first time, we could do well just because we think we can do it well mm-hmm. or we hope to do it well? And I started to really think about that. And I spent about a year trying to then create a definition of confidence, which I already shared with you, the successful repetition of any endeavor, because I was thinking, well, how do you build confidence? And one of the great experiences that I think most of us have is learning to drive a car. And when we first take that driving lesson, you know, we have to go to a parking lot so we don't kill anyone (laughs) or ourselves or crash the car into others. And we're nervous. And we're usually even nervous when we're taking the driving test. Mm. And that's to get a license and we're still nervous. So it's only after the successful repetition of not crashing a car and not killing ourselves that we have what I call car confidence. We all have, for those of us that are able-bodied, walking confidence. So it takes the successful repetition of any endeavor to build that confidence. And so what I think is more important than that to be able to start any endeavor without any encouragement from anyone is courage. The, the ability to put yourself in a position where taking that first step has no predictable outcome. And then you have to make with, make it what you can. And you will build the confidence if you do it over and over and over again to get better and better and better at it. Most people stop. I know that it's very hard for me now to start new things because I'm not very good at anything that's that I haven't done before. Mm-hmm. And I don't like to be in a position where I'm not comfortable. But that's the only way to learn new things. You have to push yourself to do that. Has, it, you have to really, I don't want to say these words, but I'm going to say them because it makes sense. But you have to really lean into the discomfort. Do you believe in natural talent? Or do you think oh, anyone yes. can Oh, get- I absolutely believe in natural talent. Yeah. I think some people just have the bone structure and the metabolism to be able to run fast, but that doesn't mean you're going to go to the Olympics if you, even though you can run fast. I, I agree with you in the sense of sports and physical and body shapes and, and what we're, what we're born with is what we're born with our, our DNA and our makeup. However, I think that skills, so music or drawing or art or I feel like anyone can get good if they have the the time and the desire I I feel like those are the two key two key pieces that you need because over time practicing something if you want to do it enough and you will put in the time going through all of the times where it's really hard and I think the thing that 
people don't talk about enough is when it's when it gets boring because no one talks about the boring part where you're just you just suck at something and you're just trying to get better but I feel that if you have the desire to push through those times then you will become I mean certainly for me as a graffiti artist when I first started painting I was not very good and just through the desire of seeing the the legends and wanting to rise to that level just through years and years of repetition and practice I got to that stage so that has kind of embedded in me that I wasn't born with any sort of special skills I practiced and I and I got better I think that I would agree with that absolutely I do think that the one mystery that I have about talent and greatness is with the prodigies that are just so much better than everybody else at such an early age. You know, where does that come from? I can't believe I'm arguing with Debbie Millman, but when you look at those prodigies, more often than not, they have their 10,000 hours. So I think the one that most people call on is Mozart. And he was fiercely competitive with his sister, who, um, because his dad was a musician and it was a music family and there was, there was nothing else to do and it was just music. And because he was so committed to gaining his parents' affection through being better than his sister, by the time that his music started to, he started playing out at 10 years old and whatever. There's a lot of people that say he'd put in at least 10,000 hours of, of practice to get to that stage. I think you're correct. (laughs) (laughs) And Um, I kind of love that. It equalizes us all, right? That's why. Yeah. yeah, I think I just want to try and take away that myth, the block that people have of if they're not, if they don't feel like they were born with a special talent to, to not then pursue it. Because I think that holds so many people back. Yeah. I agree. I, I absolutely agree. That I agree with 100%. Because a lot of people say that they're not creative. Oh, I think that's just a myth. Everybody yeah. is born creative. And it's terribly, terribly heartbreaking that people start school with crayons and end mm-hmm. it with a pen or mm-hmm. a computer. Because that's... That's how we get socialized out of our creativity. And yeah. that's, I think, tragic. 100% agree. Talk to me a little bit about the myth of the last opportunity. So I've heard you talk about this before. And I think that's another thing that, that is holding people back. Yes. Well, the myth of the last opportunity is that if you don't do this specific thing, you'll never have another opportunity to do anything else ever again. And that comes, I think, from a mindset of scarcity as opposed to abundance. And I have often said yes to things, whether it be jobs, whether it be books, because I thought if I didn't say yes to this specific thing, that I'd never be offered another opportunity to do it again. And in the term, in terms of jobs, I would end up homeless, penniless, face down in the street or with the book that this would be the only book I would ever, ever get offered. And therefore I have to say yes if I want to write a book. Mm-hmm. And, and I've operated that way pretty much through most of my life. It's very hard for me to say no to things that are big like that because I feel like this might be the only chance I ever get to do it. I'm feeling a little bit less in that regard than I used to, mostly because I think I'm older and have a bit more of an understanding that that's how I approach most things. (laughs) 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 It's like finally got through to me. But I, I do feel like that was the way I operated very early on in my life and in my 20s would take terrible jobs because it was hard for me to find a job. And I thought, well, this might be the best thing that I can get. I actually remember like maybe a month out of school and this is not a lie about a month out of school, month out of college. I was maybe not even a month. I want to say maybe two weeks because I think within a month I'd already gotten my first freelance gig within a, within two weeks or so, because I didn't find a job right away out of school. I was already thinking, well, maybe I should apply to the, I think it was Catherine Gibbs secretarial school so that I have a skill. And I could be a secretary. I am not joking. That's tragic. That's terrifying. Not that there's anything wrong with being a secretary, but that's how little faith I had in my ability within two weeks of trying to find a job. I've met so many people in high profile jobs. I mean, so we work a lot in the advertising industry um, as, as do you and meet a lot of people there. And then I've, I've got friends who've worked in retail for 
their whole working careers. And I'm starting to feel like they're all the same people. It's just some of them realized that or or had a, a view of their career being more successful than others. And that realization allowed them to go after a career or, or being freelance or starting their own business. Or But the ones that had the confidence are no more skilled or talented or, or even hardworking than the ones who have settled for a career that's, that's maybe they could have done better than. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that that is probably due to the way that they were parented. I reckon it's like, as we've talked about before, it's like when you're young, if someone tells you you're good at something, you keep doing it and you keep doing it. And that's why you always get the people who are generally like good at sports or or the better people at everything in their fields have generally been pushed in one direction. And you get, it feels great when someone tells you you're good at something. So or if you're just loved and accepted yeah. as is, you feel like you're okay as is. Yeah. And therefore, whatever you do, you will do to the best of your ability and feel that you're entitled to whatever you want. Mm. So I'm not going to ask you how the podcast started because I know that your your podcast design matters because I know you've been asked that on every single show that you go on. So I don't want you to have to, if people want to know how Debbie started um, Design Matters, then there's a lot of content out there that will, uh, that will tell that story. But obviously it's been going how long now? 14 years? 14 years. <laughs> 14 years. So, so it's not only the first design podcast, it is, it's one of the first podcasts yes. that- yeah. that existed first and longest running is how i put it now that's it's kind of crazy it's it's insane and and when i when i contacted you i actually my first line was actually it's um it's intimidating um emailing podcast royalty which is which is what you are but um i told you flattery would get you everywhere <laughs> <laughs> but the this has obviously been doing your podcast has obviously been an incredible journey for you and you've been lucky enough to talk to I mean, like Brene Brown, Tim Ferriss, just, I mean, a myriad of incredible people. What would you say that after interviewing literally hundreds of people, what would you say the overarching common trait of the successful people that you've spoken to is? Is there one? I think there are a few. I think that the really successful people never stop wanting more, are not really looking back. They're looking forward. I think they metabolize their successes rather quickly and want more. Their bar tends to keep rising as opposed to stagnating. The only two people I've ever interviewed that were, and I, and I have talked about this before, uh, the only two people that I've interviewed that I feel are, that were really just content as is, were the late great Massimo Vignelli and Milton Glaser. And I think it was because I interviewed them both when they were in their 80s. And at that point, they had no more fucks to give and just were given what they got. So I think that maybe it it comes with age. But I I would say that most of the people that I've interviewed that are in that super stratosphere of successful are people that keep wanting to create more new things. That's interesting. Is there anything that you've specifically learned through one of your guests that you've kind of taken into your work? Well, certainly Danny's courage versus confidence. Mm. That's something that I talk about all the time. I would say that's probably the biggest thing, the biggest and most cohesive as part of my practice now. And how do you get guests on your show? I write them and ask them. I don't have a booker. I write to everybody and ask. Sometimes I get people that write to me now and want to be on Mm. the show. And yeah, we're their PR we've people. We've yeah. been getting that a lot. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I get almost every day, somebody, I'll get emails from, from different PR companies and various people that, that would like to be on the show. But most of the people that are on my show, I ask. And is there anyone that you've not got yet that you have your eyes on that you'd really? Neil Gaiman. Um, yeah, another, he's my white whale, like he was for Tim. Tim got him. Neil has said yes, but he hasn't, we haven't been able to schedule it. Yeah. So this is a completely random question out of left field, um, because I could obviously talk to you for hours and hours and hours, and there's so much that we could talk about. But um, just for my own personal um, 
you worked for Hot 97. Are you, are you a hip hop fan? Or of course I am. Absolutely. How, how, did, how did it come about? At the time I was working at a design firm and a friend of mine called me because his wife, and this was a client that I'd had when I was freelancing, his wife worked at Hot 97 and they were looking to create a new identity and a new positioning and wanted to know if the firm that I was working at would pitch the business. And I said, absolutely. Let me put the important people in a room and you get your important people and we'll make this happen. So all the important people got into the room and the two most important people, the woman who was the head of the age of my agency that I was working at and the general manager of the station didn't have the best chemistry. They didn't really like each other. And I was mortified and and also really heartbroken because I thought this was such an exciting thing. Now, I didn't know what Hot 97 was thinking about doing. And at the time, they didn't either. This they was- were, They were dance music It was a dance music right? radio yeah. station. And so they were really looking at a new campaign for a dance music radio station. And so because Judy and Harriet didn't really see eye to eye, nothing ever happened. Mm. And I then shortly thereafter left the agency. And when I did, the woman that had made the original call to me called me again and said, well, Judy would like to know now that you're no longer there, would you like to do this? And so I said, sure. So I freelanced the whole thing and started working with them on doing a new campaign for Hot 97, the dance music radio station. And we had an open call at the Palladium and got through the radio. We advertised through the station. We had people come to the Palladium and we did photo shoots and it was an open call for models. And we got hundreds and hundreds of people that wanted to be part of it. And we did a dance music radio station ad campaign. And that was originally how it started. At that point, it was 92, I believe, Judy Ellis, the general manager of the station, felt that the time was right for a hip-hop, an all-hip-hop radio station. And everybody thought she was crazy, that it would never work. But she was adamant. And so... Judy Ellis, she's the general manager of the station. Rocco Macri is the promotion director. An incredible woman named Tracy, who was the general manager, um, who was who was the talent manager. Mm-hmm. Myself and a, and a man named Johan Vipper, we created all the visuals and the repositioning to turn Hot 97 from a dance music radio station to a hip-hop radio station. And Say Adams, who I mentioned before, before we started recording, he designed the logo. We designed the ad campaign and did all of the repositioning. And then later I redesigned the logo, which is still the logo today. Still the logo today. And it's gone on to become... So the energy when they were just kind of first coming out must have been incredible to be to be around. It was really incredible. And Angie Martinez, one of their star DJs, was Judy Ellis's administrative assistant. Judy gave her a shot at being a DJ. No way. And yes. Angie Martinez is in those first, the first ad campaign we did when the station was still a dance music radio station. Yeah. Wow. And look what she's done Judy with gave her, her a shot at DJing and yeah. Incredible. It is incredible. That's amazing. So we are running out of time. So I can't talk to you about your work on Star Wars or, uh, <laughs> or your, or your work with, um, Burger King. Is there, is there anything that you're particularly proud of that? Because, because I guess with, especially when it comes to, to branding, it's kind of an, you're the unsung heroes because no one, you can't sign your work. You're not, the artist doesn't get any credit. The brand or the brand almost, would encourage it that, mm. that it, this thing yeah, just exists. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. There's um, an anonymity behind the creators. Um, yeah, I, don't, always, I don't have any issue with that at all. It's, I don't need to, to be remembered for the Burger King logo. Yeah. I really don't. <laughs> if I had to pick one thing that I'm proudest of is the work that I've done in the effort to eradicate domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse, first with no more which was a consortium of groups that came together to be unified in the effort. And mm. I created that mark with Christine Mao 
And then now the work that I'm doing with the Joyful Heart Foundation, which is Mariska Hargitay's foundation. And she is the star of Law and Order SVU, which is a show about sexual crimes. Could you talk about the, the rape kit? Because the, I don't yes. know the stats. And, yes. Yeah. So, so the, the Joyful Heart Foundation's mission is to eradicate sexual violence, domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse. But the biggest effort that we're doing now is to, to end the rape kit backlog, which is an epidemic in this country where there are literally hundreds of thousands of untested rape kits all over the country in police departments and warehouses and so forth. And so we are trying to put into law the, a time limit on how long Mm. a rape kit could go untested and There's been a number of bills that have been passed. The Violence Against Women Act is something that we've been very involved in as well and are looking to a future where a rape kit, well, we'd like to eradicate any kind of sexual violence, but when a rape kit is collected, that there is a very short amount of time before it is investigated. And then hopefully through DNA evidence, the perpetrator is caught and taken off the streets. Yeah, that's incredible. And through using everything you've learned in your career and the power of branding, you can give, you can give those messages and those movements so much more momentum. I'd like to think so. Yeah. Helps me make my life make sense. Incredible. So to end off our audience is creative people that are trying to do something different in the world. And we get DMS and emails all of the time with the things that, that are holding people back and their fears and, and their confidence and everything like that. What advice would you give? And you've got a, a open floor of, of anything that you think might help. One of my billboards is a phrase that I say all the time, especially to my students, which is busy as a decision. And a lot of people aren't doing the things that they think they want to do because they think they're too busy. And I always counter that with being busy isn't something that is put upon you. You decide what you want to do. Now, it could be having children. It could be committing to a relationship. It could be watching Game of Thrones. It could be anything. But if you think that you're too busy to do something, my counter to that is, then it's not as much of a priority as the things you are doing. And so you need to rethink how you are understanding what the obstacles are in your life because busy isn't one of them. Busy is a self-constructed state where you put yourself in a position where you're either doing too much or you're focusing on things that are easier. And sometimes those harder things take more effort. And we tell ourselves we're busy in an effort to avoid having to confront that difficulty in that effort. So busy as a decision is is what I will probably have on my tombstone. Amazing. Thank you so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. We're trying to help a lot of people with this show. So we need your help to grow the community and spread our message. If you know someone who'd benefit from hearing what we talked about today, or they just need a little nudge in the right direction, pass this podcast on to them. If you want to hear more, then subscribe to us on iTunes. And if we helped you with anything, we'll really love you forever. If you can leave us an iTunes review, it makes a huge difference. See ya.